and we are live again. Business and Buckets, episode 32, coming at you right after this bonkers heat wave we had here in Seattle. But before we talk about this week's action in sports, you know we got to give some love to my guys at Fueled Supplements. The Business and Buckets podcast is proudly sponsored by Fueled Supplements. If you're an elite athlete, a busy mom on the go, or just looking for the perfect product to suit your daily wellness needs, Fueled Supplements has you covered. So choose from their selection of premium sports and wellness formulas backed by over 30 years of market experience. And whether you're trying to run a 4040, lift over 400 pounds, or just trying to enjoy life for another 40 years, Fueled Supplements has a variety of products that align exactly to your specific goals. Head to FueledSupplements.com and use code BUCKETS for 20% off. 15% off, excuse me, any any supplement besides whey protein. We've talked about each supplement pretty much every week on this pod. I, I attach the, the, the website and the links on all my socials. Be sure to check them out. If you're buying supplements, buy small business, buy local, people helping people. Hey, it's 2021. That's what we all about, all right? But let's kick it off with some NFL. I actually had a lot of fun writing this script. It was a little chaotic because... I'm leaving to Montana uh, tomorrow morning. I'm going to be there for two weeks, which is the longest I've been there since college. So let's see, September 2014. So yeah, almost seven years long as I've been there. I'm excited to actually spend some time with some friends that are still around the area, some friends' families, my family. That's really what it's all about because when I go there for a quick weekend, try not to take much days off. You know, you see your boys, I get to go on the lake, do these fun things, but I don't get a lot of family time. So as I was writing this script, you know, lots of shit going on, but I came up with some really fun topics that I really wanted to deliver to you guys. Um, You know, some things that I saw, I was like, hey, this would be fun to digest. And I'm excited to dive in that. So let's first start it up, NFL news. You know, it's always fun talking about news that relate to my favorite teams, especially news like this. The Steelers cut David DeCastro. I first saw that on Twitter before it was a Bleacher Report or any kind of other alert. Usually when I'm working, I'll have my, my Twitter feed cruising. By the way, if you haven't followed me on Twitter, at Podcast Buckets is the, the business and Buckets Twitter handle, and mine is at Gillette55. Every time I'm watching sports, when I have things on my mind, I'm tweeting them out. Would love to get some comments, get some camaraderie going on the Twitter page. So if you haven't already, check it out. But I saw this breaking news on Twitter, and at first I was just immediately heartbroken because this guy, you know, he's, he's local to this area, is from Bellevue uh, High School, which is a powerhouse football uh, school here in, in the Northwest. And probably the most reliable lineman the Steelers have had, you know, debatably Marquise Pouncey, multiple-time uh, multiple Pro Bowler, probably future Hall of Famer, uh, since Alan Fanica, who's battling to get in the Hall of Fame. I think this year, or he just, I can't remember if he just got inducted last year or is pretty much guaranteed this year. But man, a, a team that is really on its last final years before the team truly, like, you know, is rediscovered, completes itself post Big Ben era. The line is so important, and we've lost a couple guys. Marquise retired, and then this. But it seems like he's been battling an ankle injury. He's had multiple surgeries and still isn't to normal. We saw how he played last year. I feel like a lot of last year was how he had even said it. Without the fans, it's hard to get up, yada, yada. But hey, we have a lot of young, gritty linemen on this team, and, and we'll, 
do all the season predictions and dive into this later down the road. There is potential, but damn, seeing that, it, it definitely hit home a little bit. I, I don't think he's going to play for another team. Um, much like Andrew Luck coming from Stanford, he knows with injuries, probably taking a wrap versus having to go through recovery, physical therapy, those types of things. So we'll see. And then elsewhere on the offensive line, Ryan Ramchek signs a massive deal for the Saints. Five-year deal, one of the highest paid linemen in the NFL today. And he deserves it. I mean, this guy is an absolute animal. Uh, so it was good to see him get his due. And then um, the NFL cut the supplemental draft again. Some you know decent players have come over there through the past few years, but they cut it last year with COVID, cut again. Not too surprised. There's just not a lot of scouting going on, not a lot of other potential foundations outside the NFL putting out talent. The Canadian Football League, I think, is playing for the first time since COVID uh, just recently. So not too surprised there. And then Demarius Thomas retiring as a Bronco. I mean, let me look. When I first saw this, I was like, hasn't this guy not been doing anything for a while? I remember him going to the uh, Patriots, and I almost wasn't even going to put it on the script. I was like, you know, like, ah, who really cares about this? But his last quality season, oh, he went to the Texans, then the Patriots in 2019, was traded to the Jets for the sixth-round pick. He scored his first and only touchdown as a Jet on a Sam Darnold pass in Week 14. So, yeah, he hasn't played in a little while. Wasn't too surprised. You know, when I think of Demarius Thomas, I still have pain in my eyes. You could see it. Uh, as a Steelers fan, he took that one ball to the house, ended the Steelers season. Very promising season, by the way. I want to say 13-3. and three. Um, So, yeah, you know, amazing career, but... Sad to see you go. He's going to retire as a Bronco. Cheers to that. And fuck you for taking the Steelers season. If you haven't tried these new White Claw packets yet, packs yet, the Blackberry is pretty lit. And usually I say, cool, that's it. Let's move on. But I saw an article on ESPN I thought was worth having some fun on. Basically rank uh, the rosters for all 32 teams this year and talk a little bit about their strengths, weaknesses, and maybe some X factors. X factors. So I figured we'll dive through, go through them, give you my thoughts just off the top of my head. The number one roster for next year. Take a guess. Who would you guys think the NFL puts as number one? Well, probably the defending national football champions that returned their entire roster and has a guy named Tom Brady on the squad. Biggest strength, Tom Brady. Surprise, surprise. And I have to agree with that because Tom Brady is the reason this team was able to sign. You know, he took team-friendly money, but he also has the GOAT effect. Like, dude, you guys want to win? Come play with me. And players just listen. So definitely the strength. They say biggest weakness, running back Leonard Fournette's stretch of success. So basically the running game, Ronald Jones being decently effective. I could relate to that. You know, I'm not too sure how Leonard Fournette's going to perform. If I'm a fantasy guy, I'm not drafting Leonard Fournette. He might have some ups, ups and downs, but consistent through the year, you, you can't bake on him, and it's going to be hard to, to know when to throw him in, when to not. But I think Ronald Jones is going to be a guy that's a little bit more uh, consistent. And it's just weird thinking how the NFL works because when Leonard Fournette came in the league, this guy was an animal, a fucking beast, like top-level dog. And he's really not that old. Ronald Jones, 23, hasn't been in, out of college that long. And here we are just light, writing off guys like Leonard Fournette. The 
running back position and all of professional athletics is probably the toughest position because they just don't last long. They don't get paid. There's a lot of issues there. This man's 26 years old, Leonard Fournette, and he's just basically considered washed. Tough, tough. Uh, but, yeah, we got to agree with that one. Their X-Factor, Devin White, young stud. As a Steelers fan, we moved up to number 10 to draft Devin Bush. It was like Devin White, Devin Bush. They should both both equally be pretty badass pro bowlers. And I believe Devin White got hurt the first year or was a late bloomer a little bit to get in the team, and then he made the big run last year. And Devin Bush made instant impact, got hurt. I expect him to make instant impact, and he's going to be a difference maker if the Steelers' defense is going to perform anywhere near the levels they did last year. So I'm not too surprised here. I don't know if I can really debate this. I think, to me, the biggest X factor is going to be uh, Tom Brady's arm. You know, they're going to have to be able to run the ball well if Tom Brady can't throw far down the field, but they have so many weapons. They're able to keep Chris Godwin. They have AB back somehow. They have Mike Evans. They got Rob Gronkowski, OJ Howard coming off of injury. So there's plenty of weapons that might not be needed, but this team's pretty complete all around. But their number two team that I would have number one is the Kansas City Chiefs. Biggest strength, offense, Pat Mahomes, Tyree Kelsey, Ty, uh, Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey. Of course, you can't debate that. I mean, really what they did from last year was upgrade their line. They got rid of a bunch of guys, which at first is kind of head-scratching. I'm like, okay, guys, Pat Mahomes been running for his life. He needs to have help. Now they have Orlando Brown, Joe Thune, Creed Humphrey, Boomer Sooner represent, Laurent, Laurent, Devarney, Tadarif, and Mike Remmers. That's pretty crazy. They have Joe Thune and Orlando Brown on that left side. That's a beastly left side of the line. And I'm excited to see how the running back uh, running backs handle with this line, how Pat Mahomes has in the pocket. But this is my Super Bowl front runner. I don't need to wait to go over the preseason prediction with you guys. This Chiefs team is nasty. Pound for pound, absolutely nasty. And then their X-Factor, X-Factor, factor is the wide receiver depth they have demarcus robinson tyree kill mccall hardman you know they tried to make a run for juju he stayed with the steelers black and yellow baby um but this hardman guy this team's like a track team you got tyree kill running four or four twos you got mccall hardman who runs damn near as close so this team's going to be damaging regardless and why can't they add a receiver later on right it's not like it's the end of this you know you can't add anyone yet and then the third rank, they have the Browns. And the fourth rank, they have the Bills. The fifth ranked uh, roster, the Ravens, the Packers, the Rams, the Cowboys, the Vikings, then the Broncos in the top 10 rosters. But you guys tell me this. How would we rank the Browns ahead of, in my opinion, a very complete team in the Rams? Let's look at the Rams. Matt Stafford, Cam Akers, Darrell Henderson still there, Robert Woods, uh, Deshaun Jackson. I forget even that Deshaun Jackson's on the team. Cooper Cup, Tyler Higby. You know, I, I'm not going to name every lineman top to bottom, but th they have good linemen. Darnold, Leonard Floyd, Okoronkwu, Mika Kaiser, Jalen Ramsey, Jordan Fuller, Terrell Burgess. I mean, I, I know that the, the Browns have flash, but if I'm looking at, some key guys on their roster that they have ranked number three. Jadavion Clowney, like, okay, he's been on multiple teams. He had, he, you know, he hasn't really performed. 
They got Troy Hill coming from Los Angeles, but was that a lot of he was part of a good secondary, which made him look better, or was that that he's really that quality of a player? They got John Johnson the third as well. Grant Delpit, we haven't seen him. You know, they battled some injuries. Um, their line, they have Jedrick Willis rated a 62, um, the left tackle. They got um, Rashard Higgins, who's been super up and down. And then, you know, OBJ, and we know the quarterbacks and the running backs. So I don't know if I really agree with that. Um, but I think the Bills being four, especially after the draft and potentially some more experience in the running back room, hopefully they can make a change. I probably expect Zach Moss to be the guy. I just Singletary's had too many options and really hasn't done shit with them. And then we have the Ravens, the Packers. I agree with those. The Packers obviously has a lot to do with Aaron Rodgers. As he's, you know, we have no idea what the fuck's going to happen there. And then Cowboys eight. Or wait. Yeah. Cowboys eight Vikings nine. I agree with that. Broncos 10 though. Uh, really, can we give the Broncos a better roster than the Niners? I just, I feel like the Niners are completely misplaced here. I mean, am I missing thing something? How are we going to give the Broncos, their center is rated a 40.5 on PFF. Lloyd Cushenberry third, And then you have Drew Locke right behind him. That in itself is a lot worse than any hole I could find. I mean, we got Jimmy G, we got Mostert, we got... Kyle Juszczyk, Brandon Ayuk, Debo Samuel, Mohamed Sanu, George Kittle, Trent Williams, Lakin Tomlinson, Alex Mack, Aaron Banks, Mike McGlinchey, um, DJ Jones, Nick Bosa, Eric Armstead, Fred Warner, like every single name, Jason Verrett, Emmanuel Mosley, Kawan Williams, Jimmy Ward, almost everyone besides Jaquiski Tart, who's a safety, is a household name. I don't know if I agree with that. We have Washington 12, Tennessee 13, Indianapolis 14, Seattle 15, Pittsburgh 16. These are just some pretty crazy rankings. Uh, Saints 17. When we're talking, the whole point of the article is ranking rosters. This makes no sense to me. It's just a little bejumbled. The Broncos are 10. I'd put the, the Washington football team. I'd put San Francisco ahead of them. Tennessee uh Indianapolis and the fact that Seattle's 15 is a little shocking to me too. There are some holes there. I mean, we know that. But with Gerald Everett and the, the tight end game, if their line could perform a little bit better, that's the biggest issue. That's definitely going to be a bad call. Patriots 18, Giants 19, um Chargers 20. I feel like the Chargers pound for pound have a very deep roster on both sides of the ball. And if Justin Herbert could play at an elite level, this team is going to be a sneaker next year. They have just so many good players on each side of the ball. If I'm going to just off the top of my head try to pinpoint their weaknesses, and this is PFF rankings. They have Ryan Balaga ranked at a 61. Corey Lindley at 86. Matt Filer, ex-Steelers lineman, 65, 66. Nasir Adderley, 50.8. Like those are pretty low. I mean, that must have been off of last year's performance specifically. But as a unit, this is a pretty deep squad. They have Arizona 21, Miami 22, Chicago 23, which, I mean, I think a lot of that has to hinge with Dalton. Quarterbacks are number one position. Um, but outside of Dalton, if you get, put Justin Fields in there, I mean, that's a solid roster. Um, Bengals, Falcons, Raiders 26, Panthers 27, 
Jaguars 28, Eagles 29, Jets 30, Lions 31, Texans 32. You can't be too surprised at the bottom, but uh, I was just a little shocked by this. I felt like this was very bejumbled, and um, when we're talking like actual roster depth, it can't be it can't be right. But some of these rosters are very complete rosters, and you know, making me look at the top ten, it gets me so excited for this football season. And damn, dude, I'm telling, I'm probably going to have the Rams win that Super Bowl. I'm so high on the Rams. I don't know why. But just really the idea that Matt Stafford's in there, not Jared Goff, looking at all these players is just so much more appealing. And I'm a defensive first guy. If you guys didn't realize that from my playoff deep dive last year, you'd probably be a little surprised. But uh, yeah, definitely a defensive first guy. And that Rams team is nasty. Anyways, just want to dive a little bit further in the NFL. I'm itching for the season. My Utah Jazz are eliminated. One seed in the NBA. All that effort done. Tonight we got Clips Suns, two teams that are very manageably. If we are, I'm not, you know, don't want to sound like a homer, but with Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell, you tell me how those teams beat the Utah Jazz. And then number one seeded Avalanche out the door, right? This was the year. And I'm ready for some fucking football. We're in the Angels, right? Otani's pitching tonight against the Yankees, right? I love me some Otani. But uh, that's really the only thing going for the Angels. Trout's out. They're losing. They're under 500. Yeah, I need some more White Claws. Speaking of White Claws, let's get rowdy with some UFC. Lots of big fights announced, per usual, in the summer months. But the first one I want to give to you guys, this is a fucking fight. I cannot wait for this fight. Islam Makachev versus Tiago Moises. Holy shit, what a fun fight that is. When that got announced, I was like, yes, the fighting gods have aligned on this one. Bravo, Sean Shelby. Bravo, Dana White. If you're a fight fan, that's a fun one. And then Rafael Sunsal pulls out of his fight against a guy that I don't know. But then this new up-and-comer in the bantamweight division, Kyler Matrix, gets the fight. Love to see him back in there. He tra- trains at the MMA lab with a bunch of fucking badass animals. And this kid is smooth as a motherfucker. And I can't wait to watch him fight. And the best part is I don't even have to wait that long. It's July 31st. And a head-scratcher for me... Literally, Ngannou is, in my opinion, the most marketable guy in the UFC. Everyone's jizzing all over him and thinks he's unstoppable. He has the potential for more hype in the pretty much any kind of combat sport since Mike Tyson. And they said, you know what? You're not going to take the fight. You know, Dana ripped his manager on Instagram saying that you guys are psychotic. Like, hopefully Ngannou gets a new manager. We're literally just going to give you an interim fight a few months later. And say, fuck you, because you got to wait till September. Last I checked, it's June 30th, Dana. That's pretty much July. August, September. You're going to have an interim fight? Like, what are you trying to do? Just burn bridges with all these fighters? I'm so confused what the fuck is happening. But they're going to give Cyril Gane, the guy that... I've been telling you guys, this guy's going to fight for a title. Well, streamline the shit out of it. He gets matched up with Volkov after a good performance. I was a little surprised by that, I'm not going to lie. You know, he'd only had, what, seven fights at the time. Walks through Volkov. A couple weeks later, here you go, Cyril. You said in your post-fight interview you want to take some time. You have a newborn. Well, guess what? 
Fuck Nganu. Fuck John Jones. Here's Derek Lewis, which is a total mismatch, but here's Derek Lewis for the interim. One of you guys will fight, and then hopefully Nganu gets his shit together. Crazy, crazy. The UFC is so crazy, so political. How the fuck does Nganu and Team Phil? I don't know. You know, just a thought on top of my head. Nganu could go anywhere and name his price. I'm sure of it. Shit like this happens. Like, John Jones, like, ooh, um, Fader's coming out of retirement. Like, these guys could just get up and bounce and go, a couple of them together, and just get paid and say, fuck it. So, hopefully they don't ruin it. But, yeah, Cyril Gane is a heavy favorite in Vegas already. I'm not surprised. The way he moves, his agileness, his, his ability to mix head strikes with his kicking and also pretty solid boxing from his Muay Thai background. Derek Lewis isn't going to know what to do. He usually is a guy that's waiting for that one punch, but Cyril Gane is not going to let him come in. And it's probably going to be a boring fight to be honest, but Cyril Gane, he's smart. He's patient. Um, tough fight for Derek Lewis, to be honest, at least he gets a title fight though, technically quote unquote. But yeah, I thought this was wild. Just kind of came out of nowhere. Um, maybe they just want Gane to be the champion and fuck John Jones. Fuck. Uh, and Ganu, I'm not sure. In other news, Rashad Evans is trying to come out and box. He sees everyone making that cheddar. He wants to call out Logan Paul or some old vets in the boxing world. You know, he ended his UFC career on a four-fight losing streak. Yeah, I try to get paid too. I put my shit through hell. I got CTE. Yo, hey, Logan Paul, you trying to fight my ass? Hey, anybody, let's go. I thought that was kind of funny because it's exactly what's going through his head. And then he's not going to be the last one. You better show out, though. That you're, I mean, you lose a fight like that. It is what it is. You got paid. But you, a little. if you have an ego and you care about your legacy, it's going to hurt a little bit if you lose, right? I mean, look at fucking Silva. Went out there and did work. That's how you got to show out. Sugar Rashad better show out on behalf of the MMA community. Unlike Ben Askren, who didn't even care, probably barely trained, and got a payday. And then my guy in the boxing world, Gervonta Davis. Just doing work, fighting a guy that looks... It literally looked like Floyd versus Logan. And Floyd's in his corner coaching him up. Great coaching advice. Telling him to be uh, aggressive. To charge in front at the right times. To be patient at the right times. This guy is a certified savage. I can't wait to see what he does. But much like I'm complaining about the UFC, boxing's way worse. Could probably fight a bunch of jabronis forever. But uh, the day that it happens, if he does get to fight some big names, I forget the guy's name. Ah, the fucking Instagram sensei, uh, Ryan Garcia. If that happens soon, he's fucked. But it'd be a lot of fun. So hopefully boxing wants to make some money and they give us, the fans, some fights that we want. But hey, bravo, bravo, Mr. Gervonta. And then in um, the Ultimate Fighter world, got to watch the, the new episode of Ultimate Fighter before this week's pod because I was a little late. Went to the lake, got roasted, prepping for Montana, all that shit. But uh, Brian Battle getting the first dub for Team Volkanovski. And instantly I just thought he reminds me of someone in the UFC already. He reminds me of the killer gorilla. Literally a guy that used to fight at heavyweight. You could see his stretch marks, his flab, 
but he throws fucking down. He's a smart striker. He's investing his life decisions into this, even though he's still not a full-time fighter. He does construction on the side, but he's got a kid on the way. He's talking about his family and his wife. You can see this kid's hungry, and it, re it just reminds me so much of him. And I thought that was funny, but uh, I'm sure Volkanovski, even though this is obviously pre-filmed and already done, was hella happy to finally shove it up Team Ortega's ass and get the dub. But yeah, I mean, hey, I've talked about the quality of opponents, uh, the quality of fighters in this year's Ultimate Fighter, especially in the bantamweight. They announced next week's bantamweight matchup. These guys look like the real deal, like they could come in the UFC, you know, start climbing the leaderboards from 50 or higher in the rankings. And the people that have already fought in bantamweight, I feel like could come in the UFC and do a lot of work. They're, they're young, they're ambitious. The guys that are coming in now are just starting training like full mixed martial arts. They're training kickboxing, they're training boxing, they're training wrestling. They're getting the full suite of shit and are coming in so sharp uh, and not having the ultimate fighter for a while. I just, maybe it's just, I'm like, holy shit, I can't wait. And you know, these will be the type of guys I root for. But uh, I just feel like the talent's top-notch. So bravo to the recruiting squad for this year's Ultimate Fighter. A couple other, or another fight that is announced. Don't know what I'm talking about the now. Should put it higher in the script, Shane. Come on. We have Askar Askarov versus Alex Perez. I feel like I already talked about that last week. That's why it shouldn't be on the script. But, hey, another big fight in the flyweight division. We talked about... Um, Askar Askarov potentially being able to fight for the title against Brandon Moreno. Obviously, that's not happening here. Brandon Moreno probably fight Pintoya for the title. But hey, a, a big fight in the flightweight division. And then lastly, before we dive into last Saturday's fight night card, how about Jake Paul? So, you know, I talk shit on Jake Paul. I want to see him get his ass whipped like majority of, I feel like any male of testosterone does. You know, Disney star video YouTube blogger turned boxer. But the one thing that I really enjoy about what him and his brother are doing are shedding light to how fucked fighters are in their pay. I, I feel like this, like I bitch about the running backs. Like you think running backs are paid bad and their lifespan is not long. Imagine being a professional fighter. That shit's crazy. So uh, a girl, a woman fighter in the UFC posted a GoFundMe. And she's trying to, you know, fund herself uh, being a mixed martial artist while living in life, COVID maybe lost her job. Who knows? And Jake Paul donated $5,000 to that. And he always talks in his big time interviews about how he wants to shed light on that because boxers get paid a shit ton, mixed martial artists and UFC, Bellator, none of them really do. And you have to go through so many pro circuits and stuff to even make a dollar. So, hey, you know, bravo to that. If anyone, you know, if it takes fucking the Paul brothers to shed light on this and make a change, or force the greedy motherfuckers to make a change, then so be it. I'm all for it. Uh, but, you know, props to him for doing that. Hopefully this, you know, takes us further into getting some of these fighters better pay because the idea of how much they're getting paid, and that's an improvement. You know, 10, 15 years ago, it was way worse. But hopefully we can start expediting this a little bit and we can really get some quality fighters because if the pay is there, we'll probably get a more, you know, more volume in potential professionals. But last week's UFC fight night, I'll quickly bring up some prelims. Um, there was some fights that I talked about. Like, To be honest, for a fight night card, I know everyone's like, oh, this, this card sucks. I wish the UFC could put good cards every week. 
I feel like the quality that they're doing is honestly pretty good. For them to have this many consistent fights and have quality opponents in each card, if you're a true MMA fan, I'm not mad about it. If you're just the casual fan that's waiting for the Dustin, Connor trilogy, UFC cards, you know, those only come around probably two, three times a year. Yeah, you're going to be bitching. But if you're a real fan, you like to see the up-and-comers, the potential next champions, and, you know, have a conversation of act like you know what you're fucking talking about, then you're going to enjoy it. So on the prelims, the, the fights that we're not going to dive into that happen, first fight of the night, lightweight, Yancey Medeiros. We've seen him fight. He's the underdog against Demir Hadzevic. Demir Hadzevic beats him by unanimous decision. Didn't catch these fights personally. I was out of late getting sunburnt. Um, but hey, you know, I'm sure that was a good fight. I, I like watching Yancey Medeiros. And then the next fight, quality opponents. Charles Rosa with the split decision over Justin Janes. Supposedly, Justin James had bet all of his, you know, all of his money and all of his potential earning pay on him to win. He didn't win. Split decision. You know, I don't know how close it was, but uh, that's pretty savage. Julia Avila, a ranked fighter in the bantamweight division, beats Julija Stolarenko. Stolarenko. So the ranked fighter gets to keep a ranked number to her name. Crazy that she's fighting that early in the prelims, but the women's bantam weight division is not that deep. Some more common household names in the light heavyweight division. Marcin Procino with a second round knockout of Isaac Villanueva. We also had Shavkat Rakamanov, who I had talked about being undefeated in the UFC. Well, guess what? He gets to stay undefeated in the UFC as he beat Michael Prezeris with a second round submission. So, bravo, Mr. Shavkat, or however you say your name. His nickname is The Nomad, and he's in the welterweight division. And then to headline the prelims, we had a fight. This is where we start diving into the fights, the fights that I really wanted to talk about, that I felt like I was educated. To be honest, though, like I said, I didn't watch. I only got to see a couple fights on this card. I feel like the fights were pretty predictable. Um, my parlay had all favorites. I had lost one fight, ended up killing the parlay. But even in those prelims, majority of those besides, I probably would have picked Yancey Medeiros. Pretty predictable. But let's start. We had the prelim headliner, Kennedy Nashekwu, with a third-round TKO over Danilo, Danilo Marquez. Danilo took Kennedy down twice. He had a lot of control through this fight. But did it do a lot, a lot of damage while being on top? You know, I'm, I come from a wrestling background. You know, I'm not a professional wrestler. I wrestled in college, but I wrestled in high school. You, you learn the basics. And for me, you're not going to get a lot of credibility with the way the UFC scored by taking guys down and just kind of shifting through positions, maybe getting to a side position and not landing any damage. And you're not really going to do too much to your opponent unless they're not having good cardio. They'll tire out. You know, if, if for me, I'm a coach or I'm trying to be a, a champion UFC fighter, I'm prepping my cardio for five rounds. I'll give a fuck from the ultimate fighter. You're only going to go a two, but expect it to go a third, and then it's going to be close. And then the UFC three, you want to be able to battle through that. And if you ever get short notice for a five-round main event, which is a bigger payday or championship card, you should have your cardio set for that. Why the fuck not? And I, I feel like Kennedy came out and showed that. Um, he was able to stay calm while being taken down. He was able to preserve enough energy to get the, the get the shit done. And in the third round, he did it with just enough time. Literally just enough time. 
He landed 31 total strikes in the three rounds. Um, so you could tell couldn't do a lot because he was getting laid on. And I'm sure he had a lot of learning takeaways after this fight. Um, but it is wild that he ended up finishing him with 20 seconds left in the third round. Legit almost ran out of time. And I'm sure the scoring would have had it. At least a split decision, probably unanimous decision, is laying on his back most of the fight. Um, but for a young prospect like this, this is a huge win. This shows the grittiness, the grinding, the the, the willingness to figure it the fuck out. When you're fighting, when you're wrestling, you got to figure it the fuck out sometimes. He's 9-1 and one, and now on a three-fight win streak and should say, like honestly take some time to sharpen those skills up a little bit. Uh, but a fight against maybe uh, Marcin Pacino... Uh, Pricinio, who just fought, would be fun, or somebody of that nature, as he continually moves up in the UFC. And because of a pullout, he was supposed to be on the main card, got thrown to the prelims. But hey, I I'm impressed. Bravo. Not a lot of fighters are able to do that, or willing to dig deep to get the job done. And then we had Renato Moicano with a second round submission over uh, Jai Herbert. Really, Moicano didn't waste a lot of time and was all over Herbert, right? He had five takedowns. He outstruck Herbert 61 to 18. And a real good fight to get Moicano back on track. He could run things around quickly after, a, you know, not getting much damage. Probably, you know, could fight, honestly, in the next month if he really wanted to. He could fight someone like Demir Ismugulov, who looks really good. Uh, he's undefeated in the UFC and winning in good fashion. Uh, just another good prospect. So I, I like me some Renato uh, Moicano. Be able to get through Herbert like that. Let's see him back in the action. And then this fight, another bummer. This was the um, last fight I missed. But Andre Feely with the no contest with uh, Daniel Pineda. And it you know, from what I've seen in the action, uh, I bought Fight Pass. You could watch fights back, but they won't let you do it that soon. Uh, Feely was really flowing the whole fight. Uh, until that I accidental eye poked happened. He landed 44 total strikes and 34 of those 44 being significant, while Pineda landed 43 and 15 of those being significant. Feely also scored a takedown. So I'm not sure what's next for either fighter. I would assume much like the Edwards-Muhammad fight, these guys will be back in action you know, towards the end of the summer or at least sometime this year. Because, yeah, I mean, that doesn't really... like. You spend, like, this is the whole point of fighter pay, right? No contest, so no one gets paid a bigger purse. They probably split it. I don't know. And you spent that whole time, most fighters doing three to four weeks of training camp, which is like balls to the wall, best shape of my life, going through everything, plus the training you're doing outside of that, plus the recovery if you're doing physical therapy or getting massages. The UFC is not just sponsoring that. So all that time Feely and Pineda put in, and you get no outcome and don't like really help your career movement. So yeah, I'd expect these motherfuckers to be out there soon. I know I would. And then we had a shocker, a little bit of a shocker for me. Uh, you know, this is the one that killed my parlay. We had Tamir Valiev with a unanimous decision over Rayoni Barcelos, the parlay killer. Um, the stats that the UFC website gives me makes me wonder how it was a unanimous decision. Uh, Barcelos landed 81 total strikes and 69 of those being significant. He also had two knockdowns. Pretty big deal. Uh, Valiev landed 77 total strikes and 77 all being significant. 
So it must have just been way more power and damage of Tamir. Um, and I'm not sure if those were legit knockdowns. Like I said, this is the last fight I didn't catch. So, yeah, it's hard to say. But uh, no lack of opponents in this weight class at all. Uh, Tamir is moving up. Maybe he could fight someone like Cody Stamen, who's just calling out Sean O'Malley or Syed Nurmagomedov. There's def there's plenty of options in Barcelos too. I mean, the top fifty there's there's decent quality opponents. And I was pretty excited about this fight. I've always liked Tanner Bozer. He gets a second round knockout over OSP Olivier Saint Preux. You could just tell the seriousness and the the character and the body language of Bozer has two straight losses. Kind of an up and comer. You got to get the job done. You have to. I mean, both of these guys are in pivotal points in their career. And OSP didn't look very sharp compared to his last fight in the heavyweight division, right? He moved up from light heavyweight. But Bozer landed 33 total strikes compared to OSP's 12. I wonder if, you know, Bozer's power threw, threw OSP off. He's like, damn, like these heavyweights do throw bombs. Um, but I'm not really sure where he goes from here. I don't know what his contract situation is moving up in divisions because he was kind of getting his ass whooped in light heavyweight. He's 38 years old. He has a three-fight losing streak now. But Bozer, on the other hand, plenty of options. I would love to see him against someone like Alexander Romanov, who's a little higher in the rankings, or someone who's a little lower in the rankings but shows potential. So two young potential guys, Carlos Felipe, because Bozer has fought Volkan or Arlovsky and, and some vets and taken some L's. And uh, I forget who the other one was. The Polish guy, I forget his name. Um... But excited to see what happens. Good fight for him. Career's back on track. OSP, vet in the UFC. It's, it's tough to see, but it, uh, yeah, I don't know where he goes from here. And then the main event of the evening, we got this certified badass, Cyril Gane, coming to the UFC, taking names. Unanimous decision over a very, very good Alexander Volkov. You know, this is the best competition he's faced. I figured it would be a challenge, and you know, it was... Definitely a challenge, but a unanimous decision and clearly the better striker. Gane moves moves just way too good for Volkov. And he has such a different flow than most heavyweights. That's when I felt like I'm confident that he would be fighting for a title. It reminded me a lot of some you know people that come in the UFC and won titles fairly quickly, uh, such as John Jones. And all other heavyweights don't move like that. A lot of it's knockout power... And Gane has power, and he trained with Nganu, but uh, he just has a different flow to him. Volkov does really good on his feet, too, so it's not like, you know, he fought some chump on his feet. Um, he has big kicks, big kicks, powerful kicks, great striking, but he couldn't figure Gane out. Nobody has. Gane landed 139 total strikes versus Volkov's 115. And the funny thing to, the, to me is, like, you know, after the fight, he's like, I don't want to be in a rush for the next move. I have a baby on the way. But then, you know, they you know, they called him up for that interim title. He's like, fuck yeah. Like, I don't care. Like, a fight for the title? Uh, because who knows what happens with John Jones and Nganu? Like, ideally, he'd fight one of those, mostly Nganu, but he doesn't know what the fuck's going to happen. Um, bad, you know, I'm sure Derek Lewis doesn't care too much. He's fighting for the title, but ma bad matchup for Derek Lewis. He's too agile. He's too quick. He's too patient. I just don't see him landing that shot. And if I'm Derek's coach, I don't really know what game plans is going to be to be able to really put us in a position to win. 
And we can't preview UFC because the Saturday is no UFC. It's 4th of July weekend. Usually not UFC right on the weekend, holiday weekend. But then that next Saturday, July 10th, we've talked about it two weeks now. You got the Dustin Connor trilogy. The Sugar Show's back. He was looking for opponent. He has some random guy that wasn't even in the UFC sign. There was a rumor of Ricky Simone. Sean said he didn't. He can't make weight in that short of notice, so no Ricky Simone. Regardless, we get to see him. Hopefully, he wins in emphatic fashion. Could get a top-ranked fighter shortly this year. He said in his podcast and things that he wants to fight You know, relatively soon after that, so hopefully that's the case. We got Wonder Boy. We got Gilbert Burns. Whoo, the fight game is going to be fun. But let's change pace. Cheers some claw. We got the NBA coming up. Well, in some NBA news, the Pacers hiring Rick Carlisle as head coach. We got a coaching carousel going on right now. Jason Kidd coaching the Mavs. Blazers hiring Chauncey Billups. But out of those three, the Billups one definitely getting some flack. Um, obviously, there's a backlash with the rape case that happened. You know, Lillard getting some feedback, potentially rumors of him leaving the Blazers, which I highly doubt happens. There's also rumor Donovan Mitchell leave the Utah Jazz. I highly doubt that happens. But, hey, we got some coaches on some teams. I like Carlisle on the Pacers, to be honest. And a lot of these, you know, not too old, not too, like, Long since these players have retired are now coaching. A little bit quicker than usual, you could say. They might be cutting the line a little bit. But are you going to be mad if Jason Kidd's your coach? I'm sure Luca had some say in it. And Chauncey Billups, Damon Lillard, CJ, guard play. I mean, we saw with Steve Nash, right? Ty Lue. I'm not mad about it. Will they be tremendous right away? It's going to take time, right? They got to learn, learn those traits. I think we saw that in Steve Nash this year. Speaking of the head coaches, though, I just wanted to give a shout out to LeBron James. All I've been hearing in the media is Ty Lue's the best coach. Ty Lue's the best coach. All of a sudden, right? These guys that are just talking shit on the guy. Now is just saying how great he is for the, the, the matchmaking he's been doing with the Clippers. And I'm not saying he's not a good coach. I love him. I think what he does is great. I literally flew my ass down to Utah, Salt Lake City. A lot of people say the Utah Jazz. They don't even know that Salt Lake City is where they play. Get their ass whooped. And I saw all the all the changes Ty Lue's been doing, right? Saw what he did in Cleveland. But LeBron got no credit for wanting to have Ty Lue as his head coach. Now he's the greatest coach in the league, and no one gives LeBron credit. So wanted to give him credit on that. You know, obviously, you know, we're hearing the, like, the likes of Luka wanting to pick coaches. He picks Jason Kidd. Probably be some flack the next few years. You know, the end end all be all how Jason Kidd does will reflect on that. But I, you know, I don't think LeBron got a lot of credit there, and Tyloo got a lot of flack in Cleveland. But he coached him up. He did well. So let's give both of the men the love that they deserve. And then we have the final Team USA basketball lineup. Man, as a kid, I was all about USA basketball. Right, we finally had the Redeem Team. Um, we had the dream team, but this one just has a little bit of, I don't know. It feels different to me. Obviously, no LeBron James. LeBron James says he's probably done with the Olympics as far in his career. So here's the lineup. We got Bam Adebayo, Bradley Beal, Devin Booker, the Slim Reaper, Kevin Durant. We got Jeremy Grant, 
we have a Detroit Piston on the Olympic team. Draymond Green, Drew Holiday, Zach Levine, Damian Lillard, Chris Middleton, Jason Tatum, and Kevin Love. When was the last time Kevin Love even played a game? I don't even know. I know he played like a couple games randomly for Cleveland this year and then was randomly hurt again. You know, obviously the coaches know what they're doing. The coaches are legit, right? We have the best of the best of the best coaching the USA basketball team. If you haven't watched USA basketball, Coach K was usually the guy. Um, if you don't know who K- Coach K is, then you're, yeah, you're lost. But this year they got Greg Popovich, Steve Kerr, Lloyd Pierce, Jay Wright, Villanova, shout out, and Jerry Colangelo as the managing director. So if you're, you're telling me they don't know what the fuck's going on, I'm crazy. You're crazy. We're all crazy. But Kevin Love and Jeremy Grant, maybe nobody else wanted to sign up. You know, Mitchell's out. LeBron's out. A lot of these guys wanted to be out. Chris Paul not coming. Um, but I, I don't know. I just am not that excited about this lineup. I don't know why. But hopefully they over-deliver. Team USA takes the gold. If they don't take the gold, I'd shit my pants. Um... But yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to bring that up. I feel like it just doesn't it doesn't hit the same. Maybe once the Olympics start tuning up, right? They have training camp early in July. I believe July 16th they play Nigeria in their first exhibition game. Shit's right around the corner though. I'm excited. Carmelo Anthony awarded the first Kareem Abdul Jabbar Award for social justice. Shout out Melo. The fact that he's still in the league sometimes shocks me. I was like, oh shit, yeah, Melo still is there. And he plays he's playing well. He wasn't the reason the, the Blazers lost. He was a, he was good off the bench. Um, but yeah, huge award. First time. If, if you haven't looked up what the specifics are on that, check it out. Uh, I thought it was a cool award that they entered in the NBA, and I'm sure Carmelo is happy to be the first one to inherit that award. But let's talk series. We got Suns. We got Clippers. We covered games one and game two last week. So turns us around to game three. And of course, the Clippers down 0-2 find a way to win game three. That's their MO. At home with Chris Paul back, right? So there was rumors of Chris Paul playing. Is he going to play? Is he not going to play? He's coming to play. I figured he wouldn't miss that many games. I was actually expecting he missed one game. But he missed the two on the COVID protocols. And the Clippers took the game. They they were led by PG-13, playoff P, not pandemic Paul. Not all the nicknames that he's been given. He's earned the right for a good nickname in my book. He put up 27, 15, and 8. Reggie Jackson, a smooth 23. This man's been just playing real good basketball. Not even through the playoffs, just through, throughout the season with the Clippers. Uh, Zubox with 15 and 16. And then the Suns have double, digit, um, have double digits, but Mast Booker only has 15 points on 21 shots. Right, he took that nasty cut on the nose, a little mass Booker action, and then CP3 only having 15 points on 19 shots, trying to get his wind back, get his legs back. I'm sure when he's on COVID protocols, he couldn't just run wind sprints. I, you know, I don't know what the specifics are. He had a quarantine or what? No one tells us. Um, but yeah, I'm not too shocked on that. Clippers take the dub. Cameron Johnson shows up great for the bench of Phoenix. He has 12 points. But the Clippers' defense was really the story of Game 3. We've seen Pat Bev just getting pesky, up in people's grills. And the Clippers' vets are really just grinding down on the young Suns team. 
right? They are a youthful team. They don't have a ton of experience outside of CP3, and the Clippers got the best of them here. You know, I, I picked the Clippers to, to represent the NBA Finals in the Western Conference preseason predictions. I also didn't predict Kawhi to be out. I didn't predict Donovan Mitchell, Kyle Conley to be out, yada, yada, yada. Um, but hey, the, this Clippers team, they got some fighting them. So then game four, we, we got game two in LA. It's 2-1, and the Clippers just couldn't buy a bucket. They shoot 32% from the field and 16% from three. This is the best shooting team in the league this year. 16%. Bravo Phoenix or bravo the hoops? I don't know. Um, obviously, Kawhi is really missing the offense. But this is a low-scoring game, 84-80. to 80. It was just kind of a sloppy mess. Uh, Devin Booker led all scores with 25. Paul George had 23 points, 16 rebounds on 20 shots. So an inefficient game. People are probably calling him Pandemic Paul again. So let's flip the script. Game five. The Clippers find a way to avoid elimination on the road. Marcus Morris goes back in the starting lineup due to a Zubox injury, which I figured would be a, a big pain in the butt for them. But he ends up scoring 22 points. Um, Boogie Cousins starts getting some pretty big rotational minutes. He scores 15 points for them. And then Phoenix really got to witness vintage playoff P, who just snapped off for 41 points, 13 rebounds, 6 assists on 20 shots. That's a playoff performance if you could ask for one. In wake of the Kawhi injury, playoff P is there to save the day. But Reggie continued to ball, put up another smooth 23 points. But the Suns don't got a lot of offensive help on this one outside of the two big dogs, CP3, who had 22 and 8. And Booker, who put up 31 on 22 shots, so decent efficiency. But, uh, yeah, the Clippers fi find a way to avoid the elimination. So here we are, game six tonight. This is back home in L.A. as the Clippers somehow found a way to uh, found a way to win game five on the road. I'm a little shocked. But I would expect that the Suns probably play a close one until the end of the game. And I, I really do expect CP3 to take over here. I feel like playoff ball had his vintage game. He's not going to be able to put that type of performance up again. Um, but this is going to be an interesting series. I would love to see a game seven. Give me all the game sevens. And um, honestly, I, I'm pretty impressed with this Clippers team with, with, the, with the cards they've been dealt through the playoffs. But that's not it. We also have Bucks. And we also have Hawks. Ice Trey. We got Giannis, the defending MVP. I expected this this series to go six games because I didn't think the Atlanta Hawks could defend the Bucks, and I felt like Middleton, Drew, and especially Giannis could get bus buckets at will. So game one took me for a loop. Both teams shooting okay. Hawks forty nine percent, Bucks forty six from the field. Um, three point percentage. Hawks twenty five, Bucks twenty two. So no huge discrepancies on, you know, one team shot the lights out and the other team didn't. It was 116-113, so it was a very tightly contested game. And really the difference, difference was this budding superstar, Ice Trey. I mean, I think I had said last week he's really turning himself into a certified superstar that could show he could lead a team. But we're talking 48 points on 34 shots, 11 assists, 7 rebounds. He didn't get a lot of help outside of that. John Collins showed up for sure on the road with 23 and 15, but we're talking, let's see, 9, 10, 11, 12, 16 points off the bench, 
You know, no, no big performances off the bench. Bogdanovich, four points on six shots. 0 for 2 from the, the, the three-point line. He's really been struggling since coming back from that knee injury. They need this guy to consistently score over 20 points a night to get, you know, continually to win and, and try to earn their spot in the NBA Finals. And then the Bucks. Really, it was a two-man show. This is what's so confusing. You look at the box score. You know, I watched the game, but you look at the box score. If you would have told me Giannis had 34, 12, and 9, and Drew had 33 and 3, shooting 5 of 12 from 3, there's no way they lose this game. It's just kind of outrageous. And I think the big thing that really stuck out to me was the, the rebounding. The Bucks got out-rebounded, which makes no sense. How does John Collins, Clint Capella, Trey Young, Bogdanovich, and Herter out-rebound P.J. Tucker, Giannis, Middleton, Brooke Lopez, and Drew? Between P.J., Giannis, and Middleton, uh, Middleton and uh, Lopez, there's such a big difference in, in size. So really that shows me hustle, but props to Ice Trey for getting the job done. Not a lot of help off the Bucks bench, but Bobby Portis came to play in game one. So game two, I go all in on the Bucks. Like the Bucks have to win this game, and I expect Giannis to do what a former MVP would do, right? Well, game two, the Bucks do win pretty handily. Final score 125-91. And Giannis really didn't snap. He didn't need to. He had 25-9 and 6, while Middleton pitched in 15. Brooke Lopez had 16. Drew Holiday had 22 on 14 shots. And they got to put a lot of bench guys in. Like Jordan Nora had 12 minutes. Uh, they had Jeff Teague in there, Brent Forbes. They didn't need a deep rotation because they were handling it most of the game. The, the Hawks just start off, started off poorly. Uh, they shot 41% from the field while Milwaukee shot 52% and shot 25% from three while Milwaukee shot 37. But then I'm intrigued, right? It's 1-1, it's which I did not expect. We're going to Atlanta. Atlanta is going to be hyphy for having an Easter Conference Finals. I could see Quavo and everybody else courtside already. But can Milwaukee swing a game, right? They lost a game at home. Can they swing a game on the road? Well, that's exactly what they did. They won 113-102. Shooting-wise, there's no crazy discrepancies. Both teams shot pretty well. But the difference was Middleton came to play. Before this, I feel like Middleton was following into the category that I just like to put him in a regular season hero guy that does well against lower competition. You match him up in playoff time. He just doesn't show up and doesn't shoot efficiently. Well, he shot 38, uh, shot for 38 points, 11 rebounds, seven assists on 26 shots. He was six to 12, 50% from three. Giannis chipped in a nice 33 point, 11 rebound night. And that's really all they needed right on the Atlanta side. Ice Trey doing what he does put up 35 points on six of 14 from three. And then the guys that they needed to step up really didn't. John Collins, 13 points. Bogdanovich again, 8 points on 16 shots. He had 8 points on 10 3-point shots. 2 for 10 from 3. Uh, but Danilo Gallinari playing well off the bench with 18. But now I'm like, okay, well, I picked the Hawks in 6. So this is kind of going to according to nature. The Bucks win this. It's over. So I feel like the Hawks got to do something. right? The Hawks got to do something at, at home. They got to give their, their home team some love. And that's exactly what they did. They shot 50% from the field. They defended well. Milwaukee shot 39%. And they shot 34% from three while Milwaukee shot 20%.
The Bucks only had three guys in double digits. It was an 88 total score for Milwaukee as they lost 110 to 88. Middleton chipped in 16. Giannis had 14. Drew had 19. No bench help. And the Hawks had seven starters in double digits. And this is all without Trey Young, which blew my mind. Ice Trey was announced out as a bone bruise. Yeah, you know, I don't know what the specifics are, but I feel like people have already been playing through worse injuries than that, a.k.a. Donovan Mitchell, Mike Conley, Game 6. Like, dude, this is your team on the line. You got to bring Atlanta a win, and you're out on a bone bruise. But the team showed up. They put Lou Williams, like, what a great acquisition that ends up being. In the starting lineup, he goes for 21 points, 8 assists. Bogdanovich shows up decently. He has 20 points. Granted, is on 19 shots, but they need the points. Uh, Danilo plays well off the bench. Camp Reddish getting some minutes off the bench, doing well. 12 points, 5 rebounds in 23 minutes. And that was all she wrote for Milwaukee. But what's even crazier is Giannis, Giannis goes out with a, um, a hyperextended knee. He only got in 24 minutes. And they were losing while Trey Young's off the court and Giannis is on. So it didn't even matter if Giannis was out. They were losing to a Trey Youngless Hawks team. This Bucks team is so confusing, and a lot of the time the issue is offense. They can't find enough points to win a game. But now where the you know okay, let's say the hyperextended knee. There's no major injuries. Hyperextended knee, like as a big guy, you know, Embiid supposedly played with the torn MCL. So I'm assuming Giannis is going to play, and I assume the Bucks still handle business. I would expect Giannis and uh, Trey to both play, like a bone bruise, hyperextended knee. Who wants it the most? So this series just literally comes down to who wants it the most. And with game six, LA Suns, it's anybody's run. But it's just wild to me that the Hawks are still here. You know, Atlanta's turning up. That's all I can say. <laughs> and then upcoming this week, um, tonight, it's Wednesday. We got a crucial game five in LA. We talked about that. You know, like I said, I think it comes down to playoff P and Mr. Scrappy CP3. But I, I feel like, the Clippers' defense really has to step up. I don't think Chris Paul and Cruz going to let that happen. I think they're going to bring the physicality. He's going to coach up the young guys and get the job done. And then tomorrow, Thursday, again, I you know depends on what happens to Giannis. But I would expect the Bucks to win Game Five at home. I expect him and Trey to both play. And like Trey for sure. Like, come on, man, get your shit together. But some big games coming up as we finalize. The NBA playoffs, and we're this much closer to the NBA championship as we already are in the Stanley Cup Finals, which we'll talk about in a minute. Let's talk some baseball. I've been diving into baseball. I've been giving some team analysis, but I feel like I'm not giving the sport some love, so we're going to dive in a little bit today. Um, some big news. Obviously, the substance checks. I talked to you about how I feel like I get what MLB is doing. The idea of doing it midseason makes absolutely no sense. Um, but it's funny to see the spectrum of how people are, are reacting to it. You get Max Scherzer mid game. They tell him to substance check. He gets pissed off, almost starts stripping on the mound. And then you get Shohei Otani. They asked to check. He's just like, ah, oh, whatever. What do you want from me? He's smiling. He's waving. Uh, it's just been funny to see if I'm a player though, you know, it, it probably is annoying mid late game you're pitching. And then they tell you to have a substance check. It's like, dude, what the fuck? And, and there's no rhyme or reason. I tweeted out the video Trevor Bauer posted on the specifics. Uh, but sweat rosin could be mixed with, you know, mixed signals and people can think it's something else. And the umps really don't have the education to know what's what. So 
I don't know. MLB is a crazy sport. Just random shit happens. Everyone's cheating. I don't know. I don't know what to think. In Angels news, former Tyler Skaggs is suing the Angels and former staff. Obviously, he passed away. Sadly, prayers up. Tyler Skaggs due to fentanyl. Uh, I had my fantasy team uh, called Skaggin on him. I literally watched him play here in Seattle probably a month prior. Uh, brutal stuff. Sad to see. Hopefully, something gets figured out here, though. There's got to be some fault in the team and uh, former staff for sure. Sadly, more legal news. Trevor Bauer facing some assault charges. Seems to be pretty serious. Any kind of assault charges for a professional male athlete that is at the level Trevor Bauer is does not come without consequence, and if anything, will tarnish his name. Tough for the uh, Dodgers as they need him healthy as they're battling injury issues all year. Uh, Not healthy, but they need him there as they've been battling health issues all year, and I'm not too sure what's going to come of that. And how about these streaks, man? Kyle Schwarber, Shohei Otani, all showtime, right? It's summertime. It's dinger time. I cannot believe it. And I'm sure you've seen the news of Kyle Schwarber. I believe you hit another one earlier today. But just to give you a sense of what Otani's done, this is his last two weeks. June 15th, homer. June 16th, homer. June 17th, six innings with one earned, five strikeouts and a win. Next day, two home runs. The next two days, homer, homer. Off on the 21st. Goes 0 for 3 the next day. Goes into pitch, six innings, one earned, nine Ks. Another off day. Homer, one for three. Homer, homer, two homers. This is video game type stats we're seeing. And it just made me think of some players that have gone through some stretches. Let's look and see, get some fun flashbacks. Because just the other day, I was talking with a friend about some old players that we used to enjoy, what got us into baseball. I had brought up Alfonso Soriano, and it just gave me so many flashbacks. So let's talk about some hot streaks that have happened. And you'll, you know, no surprise that they happen in summer months. And a lot of these players have played in the New York and the small homer friendly fields. So we had Ken Griffey with eight straight homers in July in 93. Everyone knows Ken Griffey, all the swag and things that he has to offer. I actually just bought Nike release some Ken Griffey shoes. I've always wanted a pair of Griffey's. Now is my chance, and I seize the moment. Don Mattingly in July in 87. He had a hit streak as well as multiple homers uh, throughout that eight-game eight game stretch. Ex-Angel, but during... Uh, not on the Angels this time. Kendrys Morales in August of 18. Went seven consecutive games with the homers. Kevin Mench, April of 20, uh, 2006. Seven straight and ended his seventh straight homer with a grand slam. We got Barry Bonds, April 2004. He had seven straight. Jim Thomey, July 2002. What a, what a fun guy that was. I used to... Before I got into baseball, which is probably 2004-ish, like actually watching it, I played it and loved it, but just it's hard to watch as a kid. I'd play the old video games, and, and Jim Tomey was just a blast to play with. Um, and then we have a bunch of people that have had six or more. I'll just rattle off some names. If you're the fan of those teams, it'll probably bring good, back good memories. As I know with Otani right now, I'm loving life. We had Goldschmidt in 2019, July. Matt Carpenter, the Cardinals, both these guys at the Cardinals, July of 2018. Juan Carlos Stanton with the Marlins, August 2017. That's what earned them that Yankee contract. We have 
no, uh, Daniel Murphy with the Mets. This was in October. All postseason games granted. Six games. Mr. Daniel Murphy. Nolan Arenando, September of 2015. Chris Crush Davis with the Orioles in September of 2012. Carlos Pena, Frank Thomas, Jason Bay with the Pirates. Holy shit, that's a throwback. Jason Bay, May of 2006. Morgan Ensberg, Travis Hafner with the Indians in 05. Jose Cruz, Barry Bonds had six consecutive homer games twice with the Giants in May and April of 2001. Same season. Mark McGuire, Craig Nettles, Reggie Jackson, Frank Howard, Willie Mays, Roger Maris, Roy Seavers, Willie Mays and the Giants of uh, 1955. Walker Cooper, Lou Gehrig, George Kelly, Ken Williams. You got to love it when these players bring the heat. I I did real quick want to talk, though. Baseball is so crazy. As an Angels fan, it is literally just want to rip my hair out. The fact that I'm talking about these performances of Shohei, you know, Mike Trout's injured, but the fact that we have the best player in baseball, like unanimous, easily best player in baseball, and we can't win games. And then I see box scores like this. Red Sox Rays last Thursday 1-0 ball game. But the Rays are 45 and 31, way above what the Angels could even think about being. And and the Red Sox 44 and 31 good team themselves. But this is winning baseball. Red Sox four hits, the Rays two. They had two hits and won the game. So how the fuck does that even happen? Well, Manuel Margot stole a base. Wander, Wander Franco stole a base. Um, Kevin Kiermeyer hit a double. Michael Waka went five innings with seven Ks. Then they had all 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 regular bullpen guys. And then the the Red Sox had uh, Pav- Nick Pavetta with six point six and two thirds innings with eight Ks. And then they had a bunch of guys pitch one or two outs in the bullpen. But really, the game, the game winner happened all the way at the bottom of ninth. Margot, Mar, uh, Manuel Margot got on base, stole on second, got a sack fly to third, and won by a Matt Barnes wild pitch. They find ways to win. That is baseball. Baseball is chess, not checkers, ladies and gentlemen. But I thought that was fun. It's fun for those teams. If you're an Angels fan, it's not that fun. But winning teams find ways to win the game. I also want to talk a little bit about Dodgers Padres. Right? They played a couple times recently. They literally matched each other, like again, chess, in the offseason, acquisition to acquisition. They're both trying to win. That division stack, the Giants are still winning. But this this rivalry is becoming so much fun for me, and I'm just so jealous as an Angels fan that we don't have big-time games like this. Like We're not a winning team. We're not the Rays and Red Sox that are, just have great records and find ways to win. We're not the Giants, the, the Padres, and Dodgers that have all this new flash. right? The Dodgers and Padres have so much flash and, and money being spent. Uh, young youth, vets, pitching, everything. So I wanted to match these guys up. You know, let's size them up like we're fighting. Nick Diaz, size them up. Let's see what's going on. Who has the edge this far? We're almost all-star break, right? We're getting there. <laughs> we're almost all-star break. Angels already eliminated. No surprise there. 
when we look at the head-to-head matchups, I'm going to have to give the Dodgers the pitching advantage. Now, right? This isn't a forever thing. This isn't just this season or a forever thing. This is just right now. And I think a lot of that has to do with just the depth and the dependability. You know, when the, when the Padres signed a guy like Blake Smell who just hit the uh, 10 day dia, uh, 10 day IL, I hate calling the IL, um, supposedly some stomach sickness or some shit. And he's pitched the way he has. Like, how can you put them over the Dodgers? They got you, Darvish, pitching amazing. 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 Joe Musgrove, no hitter, doing well. You got Blake Snell, uh, Denlison Lament, Chris Paddock. And then the Dodgers got Clayton Kershaw, Walker Bueller, Trevor Bauer, Julio Urias, and Tony Gonsolin. Technically, Urias is their fourth-ranked pitcher, and he's just throwing gas. So I got to give the edge to the Dodgers in the rotation which is very big come playoff time. When we think about those head-to-head matchups, I'm going to take that Dodger staff all day long. Then we got the bullpen. I feel like their bullpen and even their closers are pretty close, a lot closer than the starting rotation. The Dodgers got Blake Trinan, Joe Kelly, Victor Gonzalez, Jimmy Nelson, ex-starter, David Price, ex-starter. The Padres got Drew Pomeranz, Emilio Pagan, who I really like. Austin Adams, Pierce Johnson, Tim Hill. Guys are all pitching pretty well. And they got they, they have a multiple arms. And then when it comes to closers, Mark Melanson and Kenley Jansen. I mean, I could pull up the stats. They gotta be at least at both of them top five and and closes uh saves this year. Let's see. Soul bases, close saves. Melanson, 25. Kenley Jansen, 20. That's one and three. So yeah, I mean. I'm going to give that a wash. The, the bullpen and closers a wash. It'll be interesting to see Mark in, in playoff time too, if he can close down, if he can open up shop. When it comes to the infield, I'm going to have to go Padres. This infield is nasty. We got Eric Hosmer, Jake Cronenworth, Manny Machado, Fernando Tatis, the Dodgers, Max Muncie. The thing with the Dodgers though is they're so deep. You have Max Muncie, Mac Beattie. Gavin Lux, Chris Taylor, Justin Turner. Um, obviously, uh, Corey Seager's on the IL, but he's going to be back. So pretty close, but I'm going to give the edge to the Dodgers in this one, especially or the Padres in this one, especially come playoff time. So let's talk outfield. little different story. The Dodgers got A.J. Pollock. Chris Taylor can go there if need be. Cody Bellinger, Mookie Betts. The Padres have Tommy Fan, Trent Grisham, Will Myers. Still a quality outfield, but yeah, the Dodgers have a huge up. That's the heart of their offense. That's why you got to go at the Padres on the infield. I'm going Dodgers outfield. I'm going Dodgers with a DH, right? They could put Pollock in there. They have Pujols now, Will Smith on an off night. They just have too many options. You still have Zach McKinstry that we haven't even talked about. Where typically a DH for um, the Padres would be, you know, a mix of fan, Will Myers, whoever's off, maybe Austin Myers or uh, Austin Nola, maybe Eric Hosmer if he has a night off. Drexen Profar's out there too, a little good infield depth. But I'm going to go crunch time, playoff time. He put pools in there. You know, as an Angels fan, I always wanted pool holes to go through playoffs because when you need to win, you need those runs, you need those dingers. I want to see how, how he could perform because in St. Louis, he was the best of the best. So, yeah, 
the moment he signed with the Dodgers, I could just already see him come like October, just fucking crushing balls. But hey, it's going to be an interesting development. The most interesting development, if you are a Padres or Dodgers fan, tune in. Fuck you guys. No, I'm just kidding. Um, love your teams as a fan. But uh, the Trevor Bauer news, I mean, whatever happens with him, that could drastically change things. And the funniest part of all this is we're talking shop. Ooh, ah, oh, the Dodgers, the Padres, both y'all chasing the motherfucking San Francisco Giants. We already dove into them, the old reliables. Do you know about Kevin Gossman, the ace, huh? Do you know about that? I don't know shit about it. I know he whooped the Angels' ass. I can't believe this guy's an ace. But here we are. Here we are. Diving through this, though, I wanted to have a little fun here before we talk about the standings. We talk about last weekend series, this coming weekend series. I wanted to go through and give you guys my, like I said, I've been a fan watching consistently since 04. I wanted to give you my all-time favorite slash flashy team of just like glory days Shane baseball, who I think of, who I used to play with on the games. And it'll be kind of fun just bringing back old memories and comparing the talent we have today versus, you know, this is coming from the 2000s, 2000s, 2010s and on. Uh, but I wanted to do it. It's fun. And speaking of San Francisco Giants, I think the first guy you have to put in catcher in my book is Mr. Buster Posey. I remember him on ESPN Magazine was still a thing. He was such a big deal. He's been a fucking badass. He keeps winning championships. The Giants, I went to the second baseball game of the season. Giants, Seattle, Mariners here in Seattle. Was laughing at them both. Like, the Mariners are too young. They're going to have a train wreck of a season. Probably finish third in the division. Here they are ahead of the Angels. The Giants, they're, go they're not going to be able to compete with the Dodgers and Padres. They have two old. Buster Posey's in the sixth spot. That's kind of funny. Buster, po Buster Posey said, fuck the sixth spot. I can still ball. I, I think he's still hitting over 300. The guy is flat out just still balling. Um, so I got to put Posey on there. Honorable mention, though, and it's probably a lot of people slapping the face, but Yachty Molina, the shit that he's done. So these are two active players, so we won't look at their career stats or do anything crazy there. Uh, but I, I just I, I had I had to put those guys as the catchers. Those are the guys that I think of um, since my tenure of being a real baseball fan. And then in first base, we got Albert Pujols still talk, you know, still hitting, still doing his thing. I'll never forget the day that I got it, the update. I think it was like 5 a.m., one of like the first iPhones. Albert Pujols to the Angels. I about shit my pants. I li literally went to the internet to confirm that that was a real thing because there was the rumors of where he could go, and the Angels weren't even one of them. Uh, but he is the machine. You cannot count him out. And then I'm going to put the guy that we already talked about, Jip Tomey, in there as an honorable mention, man. Like I said, I used to love playing with this guy in the old baseball games. Um, but this guy's straight crushed. Like, not going to lie. Let's look at some of his stats. He was an all-star in 2004, 2006, 99, 98, 97. He had a good career. He played 22 years. He played with Cleveland for a majority of that, 13. That's when he was mostly an all-star. He did get an all-star nod with the White Sox. Um, but that's what I remember, you know, when I think of him and, and think of the video games, you know, some of the things Pia, um, if you don't know, you know, baseball reference is usually where you look at the stats. If I'm looking at this, some things that stick out is his home run years during some of his best years in Philly in 2003, he had 47 home runs the year before in Cleveland, 52, 49, 
uh, 42 in Chicago. Uh, you know, he put up multiple 100 RBI seasons. He had multiple 120 walk seasons, which is big. He was um, an MVP, um, finished at, uh, 15th in MVP, 6th in MVP, 21 in MVP, 7th, 7th, 4th, 12th, 18th. So he's always a high performer for a long time, majority of that being with Cleveland. But this man was fun to watch. I had to give him a little bit of nod on my first base uh, list. Moving over to second, I already stole, stole the, the foreshadowing with Alfonso Soriano. Um, I never had TV growing up, so watching sports is hard for me. I remember there was times when I would GameCast games, like ESPN GameCast, right? The fake hit, you see the ball like, oh shit, maybe Vlad Guerrero hit a home run or it's like a pop out. You're like literally watching that. I used to farm, which if you never farm, like hang, sitting in a tractor driving circles all day. Um, the guy that I worked for had serious radio. I would listen to baseball, sports talk or day games, like Cubs games and stuff when I could. And Alfonso Soriano was just so much swag to me. I had so much fun. And this is saying a lot because if you know a lot of second basemen, right, we have Ian Kinsler, we have Dustin Pedroia, you got Chase Utley, like some really, really good second baseman that I really respect. You know, I feel like Chase, Dustin, and Ian had a lot in common, right? They're the El Capitans, they're consistent, they're gritty, um, but... I want to give Alfonso Soriano some love. I really do. Um, But a lot of these guys are fun. So let's type in Alfonso Soriano here and relive some stats. I love this guy so much, but I couldn't root for him because he played with the fucking Yankees to start. And then he went to the Cubbies and I was all aboard. But it it sucked that it was after, you know, he's 30 years old. Um he had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven consistent all-star appearances. In 2002, he had, let's see, 41 stolen bases, 102 RBIs, 39 home runs. He just did a lot of everything. He was rookie of the year. He finished as an um, MVP, the highest third in voting in 2002 in the Yankees. And obviously that Homer friendly park did him justice, but with the Washington nationals in 26, he had his um, season high with four. Well, he had 41 there 41 with the Yankees in 2002 and 43 uh, with the Yankees in 2001. He had multiple 40 stolen bases or more seasons, hundred RBI season. I mean, this guy was just a Swiss army knife and was a blast for me to watch as a, Young baseball player. But yeah, honorable mentions. You got to give love to Kinsler, Pedroia, Chase Utley. Like I said, I feel like they have a lot in common. Um, But lots of good names. I I couldn't just honorable mention one. I was like, I got to put all these guys in there. And I was still missing some. Shortstop. The swaggiest position on the infield, right? You got the Capitan, Derek Jeter. You have to lead with him. I don't even need to dive into his stats. We all know Derek Jeter and how badass he was. And then honorable mention, I have to put my guys, Troy Tulowitzki, Jimmy Rollins in there, man. Um, as a young kid, uh, the, the, the um, Rockies were close. I went to some Rockies baseball camps. Troy Tulowitzki was that guy. He was so much fun. 
Um, Jimmy Rollins, so much swag, so much fun, turning double plays, the speed. They all had speed. They could still, they could do a little bit of everything. So I had to give those guys some love at the shortstop position. I have one name at third, surprisingly. One name. This was a guy that was rumored to come to the Angels multiple times because of the need at third base until Mr. Anthony Rendon stepped in. But Adrian Beltre, I feel like this guy doesn't get enough credit. Um, you know, he played majority of his years in Texas, but this guy was a savage defensively and offensively. I mean, gold gloves galore, damn near every single year. Uh, the highest in MVP voting he finished was actually uh, second in MVP in, in uh, 2004 with the Dodgers, and then he finished seventh with MVP a couple times with Texas. He only had four all-star appearances, but was just a badass. He'd finished as high as 48 home runs in 2004. That was the year he finished second MVP with the Dodgers. Uh, multiple 30 year, uh, 30 home run or more, 100 RBI seasons. You know, he'd chip in a couple double-digit stolen base seasons. His batting average was consistently high twos, uh, 200s or 300s. This guy was just so much fun and played for a lot of teams. He played eight years in Texas, seven years with the Dodgers, five years with the Mariners. Never got to play with my Angels. But I always just loved watching Adrian Beltre in the hot corner. Moving in the outfield, left field, we got Manny Ramirez. You cannot not lead with Manny Ramirez. I mean, the guy taking a piss in the outfield and random breaks, the, the way he just defended the field with the green monster there and the clutch performances, the red Octobers, everything else. We have, as my honorable mentions, Carl Crawford and Matt Holliday. Man, Carl Crawford was so much swag. I remember playing backyard baseball. I grew up in a small town, right? 1,400 people literally made like diamonds in the backyard playing base, uh, backyard baseball with ghost runners. And everyone loved Kyle Crawford. The guy had multiple 50 stolen base seasons. He finished with 60 in 2009 uh, with the Tampa Bay Rays at the time. He was an all-star four times. He battled injuries, um, had a golden glove as well. He, he spent nine years with the uh, Tampa Bay, four years with the Dodgers, a couple with Boston. But he was just a blast. His batting average consistently over 300. Um, home run years. You know, he never got really over in the teens, never had a 20 or above, but would somehow get damn near uh, 100 RBIs. He finished with 90, 88, 81, uh, multiple years. This guy was so much fun, and I feel like we never got to see Pete Carl Crawford uh, due to injuries. And then he had Matt Holliday, Mr. Consistent. Um, what a beast he was. Moving to center, we got to put my guy Mike. I don't feel like I have to spend a lot of time talking about this. Is in my opinion, the best baseball player ever consistently second, first MVP, does everything, came in the league, still in bases, got into his power. He finds a weakness, or people find a weakness. He fixes that weakness and shows out. Um, I'm also going to put in there Andrew McCutcheon, Torrey Hunter, Jacoby Ellsbury, and Grady Sizemore as my honorable mentions. I had so much fun with these guys. Andrew McCutcheon in Pittsburgh, he finally got the hell out of there. Torrey Hunter, the years he played, then he came to the Angels and played really good ball. That was a matchup made in heaven. That was like Gary Payton going to Miami when Dwayne Wade was there. I couldn't believe it. Jacoby Ellsbury, Grady Sizemore with Cleveland. We'll quickly pull up some Grady Sizemore um, because I feel like he's a guy that really didn't last a long time but doesn't get a lot of credit. I mean, this guy put up some crazy stats. He was a three-time All-Star 2006, 2007, 2008. 
Um, he finished uh, as high as 10th in MVP voting, has multiple golden gloves. In 2006, he had 53 doubles. He had 28 home runs. In 2007, he had 24 home runs. In 2008, 33 with 100 RBIs. Um, he consistently hit right at the 300 level. This was a guy in Cleveland that I felt like was just so much fun to watch and didn't get a lot of credit. So I had to put them in my honorable mention, but there's there's so many good center fielders. But Trout and, uh, and um, Torrey Hunter definitely have to be at the top of the list. And then in right field, the guy that made me watch baseball, Vlad Guerrero, is going to be number one. Hitting balls, all kinds of garbage balls, first pitch, home runs, doing a little bit of everything. Uh, local town hero here, Ichiro Suzuki, as my honorable mention. And I also got to throw Lance Berkman in. You know, he did play some DH, but once he went to outfield, I feel like he revived his career. And that was a guy that didn't get a lot of credit for Houston either. Uh, but I had a lot of fun with him. And then my DH. This one was easy. I got David Ortiz, Big Poppy. I got Jason Giambi. These guys, I could just see them with a big old wad of chew in their mouth. Games under the line. They're fucking crushing balls. Uh, all the tar, all the bare wood that you can get. These guys are the baddest men out there. And then in starting pitching, we had Jared Weaver, John Lackey, Madison Bumgarner, all the beer chugs, the shit that he did. Tim Lincecum, how much swag he was as a little guy. Uh, Cliff Lee, dominant. Josh Beckett, uh, Schilling, Johan Santana. The peak Johan Santana had such a high exponential uh, ceiling that it was just unheard of. Randy Johnson, right? Uh, those are the guys that I think of when I think of elite starting pitchers since I've been a baseball fan. And then the closers, pretty straightforward for me. You got to go Mo, Mariano Rivera, and I'm going to put K-Rod, Francisco Rodriguez in there as well. I want to do a little fun though, right? A little mix up. You know, I'm just reliving the glory days because my angels suck again. And a lot of these guys, you know, you forget about the Giambi sometimes. You forget about the Lance Berkmans. So I just went through some lists of some players that have been playing since 2000, picked out some ones that I, I was really close to as a fan and had a lot of fun watching and guys that just really, you know, had the game in good shape. And it's crazy because you think of these guys and the youth movement we have, the Tatises, the Vlad Juniors, uh, the Otanis. There's just so much young talent, the Acuna Juniors, um, the Pat uh, Alonzo. So, yeah, I, I love me some baseball. That's all I got to say. So let's talk relative baseball. What the hell is happening? You know, since last week, little switches in the standings. The Red Sox, of course, back up on top. They got a two-game lead with the uh, on the Rays. You know, we're getting towards that all-star break. Teams determining, are we going to try to make moves? Are we going to try to sell? What the hell does our future look like? The Twins, 33-44. and 44. Big shocker for me. Um, I, I got to assume that they're going to be sellers. Some teams that are on the border. You got the Indians, the Blue Jays, the Mariners, the Angels, right? Teams that can potentially recover, um, but should be sellers. You got the Reds, the Cardinals, the Braves, the Phillies. The NL Central or the NL East is so tough. The Braves and Phillies are kind of out of it. They're not really in striking distance wild card. What the hell are they going to do? Um, the Brewers are five games up on the Cubs all of a sudden in the NL Central with a nice breathing room. The Giants, a game and a half back of the Dodgers. So last weekend's matchups, the Rays beat the Angels, of course, 2-1. to one. No surprise there. The Mets and Phillies split a four-game weekend series 2-2. Two, two. 
which, if anything, is probably good for the Mets as the Phillies need to gain ground. The Red Sox sweeping the rival Yankees. I don't know how the Yankees feel about that one, but them Sox coming out to show. The Braves and the Reds splitting a four-game series last weekend as well. Both teams doesn't help too much as they're falling out of the standings. Uh, the Giants beating the Athletics in a Bay Area battle 2-1. The Dodgers beating the Cubs 3-1 and smoking them on Sunday Night Baseball. So what do we got this week? Well, this week we have the Padres battling the desperate Phillies this weekend. The Dodgers and the Nationals. Trey Turner just hit for a cycle today. The Mets versus the Yankees. The Mets versus the Yankees in an AL-NL battle. That'll be the Sunday Night Baseball game. That's going to be a fun one. A battle in New York. We have Rays, Blue Jays, and a big AL East battle. The Blue Jays looking to catch some ground, especially with Vlad Jr. just out there demolishing balls. We have Cubs and Reds in an NL battle, Astros, Indians, and Red Sox Athletics. Big-time AL battle. We're right there. All-star break. Lots of things happening. Lots of fun in the baseball world. But let's close out with some hockey. I mean, whew. I, you know, hockey is not that predictable, and I don't think anyone could have predicted Montreal. But Tampa Bay, I, I, I don't know if you could be too surprised. That team is nasty. But we weren't even to the Stanley Cup. Last week, we talked all the way through Game 6 of Tampa Bay, New York, which things were really getting interesting. I was like, shit, the Islanders might pull this off. Well, in Game 6, Brandon Point, of all people, started the game off, right? He got his 14th playoff goal as Tampa Bay went up 2-0. At the period break, New York, obviously knowing they needed to step up and force overtime, they were able to do so, and Anthony Bouvelier got his fifth playoff goal to get the 3-2 victory and force a Game 7. Who doesn't like Game 7s? Well, in Game 7, this one was all Tampa as they outshoot New York 31-18, and that's just too much to ask of Varlamov, who's had an amazing postseason. Um, he gave up one goal, and that was too much. Yanni Gord was a difference maker. Very suspenseful game seven. They ended up taking it 1-0 to face Montreal. Montreal was able to close out Vegas. We covered the five games last week. Well, in game six, they outshot Vegas or were outshot by Vegas 39 to 32, but that wasn't enough. The game got, went into overtime at 2-2, and Arturi Lenokin finished the Golden Knights with his third playoff goal. So that sets the stage. The underdog Montreal Canadiens, the defending champion Tampa Bay Lightning. Initially, I wouldn't expect Montreal to be able to win, but they keep defying the odds. So I would assume a six-game series, Tampa Bay does work. And then here we are, Tampa Bay, game one, out shooting Montreal 27-19. And that's just too much as Tampa takes game one 5-1. Yanni had a six-playoff goal. Uh, Nikita Kucherov got hot with his sixth and seventh playoff goals. And then Steven Stamkos added to the bleeding with his eighth playoff goal. And, you know, based off game one, a repeat looks inevitable if you ask me. So game two, the Lightning are going to be without forward Alex Kilhorn. That's happening today. That's going to be an interesting one. I feel like if Tampa Bay managed this is with light work again, there's going to be so much pressure on Montreal. And I, I, I'm interested to see how they could respond, right? A team that kind of defied the odds. What, what, what more do they have left in the tank? Especially with the high-octane offense that Tampa Bay has. 
Um, game two tonight, game three and four, that's Friday and Monday. They get a, a little bit of an extra time. So we'll probably be talk, picking up game four unless it's a sweep. Um, but yeah, other than that, uh, a non-story story. It is a story, but not a major story. Serena Williams out of the Olympics. I feel like she's doing kind of what we talked about Nadal last week, going for career longevity versus showing out in the Olympics. And can you blame her? I can't. Can you? I'm just kidding. Well, that's it, guys. Episode 32, Business and Buckets. I hope you enjoyed my all-time baseball team. I hope you enjoyed diving into some NFL a little bit deeper as I'm just craving for the season. Obviously, we're in the Stanley Cup. We're almost in the NBA Finals. Can't wait to tune in with you guys next week. From Montana, where will I be doing the show? I don't know, but I'll figure it out. See you guys then.